Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Well, good morning again. I hope you all had a good Father's Day. I realized after I got home last Sunday that I failed to mention it was Father's Day last Sunday. So happy belated Father's Day, if that's a thing. Well, if you've been at our church for uh, any length of time, and especially if you've been with me either in small group or men's group, you know that I'm a big picture guy. In other words, I always want to connect whatever issue we're talking about or whatever issue you may be going through in your life to a bigger picture. We always need to look at the underlying heart issue, the underlying sin issue, the underlying issue between you and the Lord. So whenever there's an issue in your life, whenever there is an issue in your marriage, in your relationships, your relationship with God, in order to deal with it properly, you need to focus on the bigger sin issue. For example, the immediate issue may be just uh, a lull in the passion of your marriage, but there's a bigger issue. In other words, just forcing yourselves to go on more dates or spending more time together will not really fix the bigger issue if, if there is an underlying sin issue involved there. Your frustration even over a certain politician or frustration over the fact that you are required to wear a mask in our county, voting him or her out or just not wearing a mask is not going to solve the bigger sin issue. You don't pray enough, perhaps. That's something you feel convicted about. That issue is not just solved by forcing yourself to pray more. You need to look at the bigger sin issue. Why do you not want to pray? Why do you not see the need for daily prayer in the first place? And the reason we need to look at the bigger issue is because dealing with the bigger issue deals with the heart. And that's what God is concerned about, not the peripheral little issues or scenarios in your life. It is the heart issue that God desires. And when you get that right, then you don't have to force yourself to fix those externals. You will be motivated by a heart of worship. Just fix the particular action or inaction, and you approach your sin pragmatically. That is to say, legalistically. But that doesn't deal with the heart. That may fix your actions. That may fix what people see. That may even appease your conscience, but it is a legalistic dealing with sin, which is not really dealing with the sin, which is in your heart. So, when we talk about division in the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, we need to be careful that we don't just look at the particular issue. Because then we can ignore Paul's teaching because you say, well, I don't struggle with creating factions based on church leaders. I can't even imagine doing that in our church. That's simply how the Corinthians' bigger issue, sin, was fleshed out. But it was not the main issue. Look deeper. Look bigger. 
and you will see that even if there is no such sin in your life or in our church, there may exist the underlying cause of the Corinthian sin in your own heart, in our hearts at Grace Church of the Bay Area. So, though you may not struggle with causing division per se, though you may not idolize particular teachers in the church today, you still would do well to examine the heart of division in your own life. In other words, to take what Paul is telling the Corinthians and apply it to us in a different place and a different time, we must look at the bigger issue. Because dealing with division, as Paul is, starts with you. Because, ultimately, when we talk about dealing with division, even when there is no division in the church, we're talking about pride, self-glory. Remember, this was the issue that Paul is addressing. Of course, he is, he is just uh, he's stupefied. He is angry. He, he is frustrated by how that is played out, that they are actually taking his name and his friends' names and using that to create division in the body of Christ. But we have also seen that he is dealing with the bigger issue, which is the sin of pride, self-glorification. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23 with me. And this will be our passage for the next two weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. From these verses over this next hour and next Sunday, we will be looking at six principles, six principles to remember to combat self-glory and division in the church. The first one being the most important because that's what leads to division. Six principles to remember to combat self-glory or pride and division in the church. The first principle to deal with pride and division in the church is the asinine success. The asinine or absurd success. And I find this in the beginning of verse 18, the first sentence Let no man deceive himself. This seems like a warning where Paul is saying, don't deceive yourselves, be careful. Going forward, let no one be self-deceived. But here's the thing. When you look at the grammar that Paul is using, it tells us that he is asserting that the self-deception has already happened. It has already occurred. And some within the Corinthian church have successfully deceived themselves. And as we'll see, the reasoning behind that, it is absurd, it is asinine. And what he's about to introduce is, again, the difference, as we have seen so many times in 1 Corinthians, the difference between worldly wisdom, which is foolishness to God, 
and God's wisdom, which is foolishness to the world. And the verse that we ended with last week, verse 17 in chapter 3, gives us a greater insight into the depth of this deception and absurdity. The warning was to those, if you recall, to those who would harm the church, destroy the church, he said. Unbelievers who would come and bring in worldly wisdom and stoke this self-glory in Christians, stoke this pride in these Christians, and thus hurting the church. Back then, he was addressing specifically these influencers, these false teachers perhaps. But here when we get to verse 18 and following, he's not only addressing the non-Christian teachers who would lead them into worldly wisdom, he's also speaking of the Christians who would fall into that trap, who would follow those teachers, who would start thinking, perhaps not 100%, but just letting that kind of worldly thinking creep into their way of doing church, if you could put it that way. And so when we talk about the success of self-deception having already occurred, we talk about Paul is now addressing these people who would follow the worldly wise. We understand that this is not far-fetched because we've seen that this is exactly what he's addressing. This is the issue that has already occurred in the Corinthian church. And so we know all of this is true. The reality is that, again, some of the Corinthians truly believe that they are exceptionally wise. But they are only wise in their own eyes or wise according to the world standards. And we know this is not just a, a cause of, of pity from others. Like, oh, look at him. He's just, uh, he just thinks he's smart, but he's not, you know, good for him, right? Like a little kid, you know, he thinks he's reading, but he's just babbling. No, these are adults. These are regenerated Christians. And this self-deception leads to an arrogance and a conceit that is hurting the church. And this is the point. It is causing factions. It is causing division within the local church. And notice that Paul says uses this term, deceive himself, or in the NIV, deceive yourselves. Make sure nobody deceives himself or deceives yourselves. Now, that's very important. It doesn't say be deceived. There may be a a pressure, as we have seen from these false teachers. There may be an encouragement from an outside source that leads to this kind of pride and subsequent division. But ultimately, as you very well know, in any sin, it is up to the individual to choose that sin. It is up to the individual to choose to think that way, having already had the Holy Spirit residing in them and knowing the Scriptures. Nobody can force him to think this way. Nobody else is to blame. Yes, warnings have been made to those who would hurt the church and promises stated for those within the body of Christ. But now Paul is placing the blame where blame is due on the individual who chooses the sin. He definitely never says sorry for actually being an apostle so that you could claim me as a leader of your faction. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, sorry for not putting up greater barriers so that these people would not come in. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, sorry for not truly teaching you the gospel. I must have not been clear. He doesn't say that. And he even does 
give a warning of judgment to those who are infiltrating the church, but he is rebuking the Corinthians themselves because it is their sin, it is their pride. And the lesson is the same for us today. We must be careful because if there is a true self-deception, then the particular individual who is self-deceived by the very nature and definition of that phrase, self-deceived, is unaware of what is happening. And this is a huge warning to all of us. This is the nature of deception. The, there are some who are listening here or online or, or later on in a recording where as Christians, this, this is just kind of falling off of like a water off a duck's back. This is not me. This is not me. No division, no pride. But you may be self-deceived. In fact, isn't that one of the indications of self-deception, that you don't think that you are guilty of whatever the issue is? And so I'm not saying that if you don't struggle with pride or you don't think you're struggling with pride, then you must be self-deceived. What I'm saying is if you don't think that you have a heart of pride, take some time to examine because you may be self-deceived. Take some time to evaluate because maybe it is your pride that is telling you that you're not proud. We must take heed because there are definitely some among us who think themselves wiser than they are, and this leads to this self-deception. You know, as Christians, there is a tendency to reject such claims, right? To say, no, I'm not self-deceived. I'm not proud. We, We don't tend to say that because we recognize how little we know. We recognize that we are finite sinners before an infinite and holy God. But despite that, we would do well to take a long, hard look at ourselves to make sure that there is no semblance of divisive pride. Well, what are you talking about here? Are you talking about pride or divisive pride? Just to be clear, what is the difference between divisive pride and run-of-the-mill pride? Absolutely nothing. It's the same pride, the sinful heart of man. Pride divides. Though a Christian in our church, their pride may not divide like at the Corinthian church where you got your split in quarters, right? Oh, those people sit over there because uh, that's where Paul used to sit and they're with Paul. And Peter preached from that corner, so they sit there. That doesn't happen uh, in our church. And for the most part, I think it's safe to assume uh, in the American church today, it doesn't happen, maybe in certain churches. But pride still divides. Because think about it. The very definition of pride is to create, perhaps even in your own mind and in your own heart, a gap between you and another person because you have a measure of what you think makes you better than that other person. Isn't that a safe assumption or description of pride? And wouldn't that also be a good description of division? A man-made gap between you and another person, even if it doesn't exist in reality, even if it just exists in your own mind and your own thoughts and your own self-deception? You see, when you think yourself better than someone else, you have deceived yourself and you have deceived yourself successfully. Now, it's hard to elaborate any further on this self-deception without going further in this verse. So let's do that. Let's move on to the second principle, 
to remember, to combat or deal with self-glory and division in the church, and that is the antithetical strategy, the antithetical strategy. And we've seen this uh, really throughout 1 Corinthians. He says in the second sentence in verse 18, If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Here we have the subject of the deception. And this goes back to the false wisdom of the world that Paul addressed earlier on in the letter. I think it would be helpful to review, so would you turn back a page or two to chapter 1 and follow along as I read verses 18 through 29 of 1 Corinthians 1. And this was uh, that the main section where we saw that a presentation of the theme of the foolishness and the wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 29. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the, de- the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. And then jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 14. He says, A natural man, that is the unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for, again, they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And there we get the key as to why God's wisdom uh, essentially, or starting with the gospel, is foolishness to men because they are spiritual things that the natural man does not comprehend. So, the foolishness that Paul tells believers to pursue, as you know, is the foolishness of God, which in reality is only foolishness to sinful man. It is, in fact, this foolishness of God, the greatest wisdom, the only true wisdom, the wisdom of God. And that's why the conclusion is that if you become foolish in the world's eyes, you will actually become wise in God's eyes. The only way you can do this is to first recognize your own foolishness, your own ignorance, your own conformity to the world around you, to see that you are indeed self-deceived and then to pursue the wisdom of God to pursue the truth. As people who have hope in the living God, 
we must abandon our confidence in the temporal, temporary securities which the world provides and pursue the eternal folly of God, the gospel. And again, as I stated last week, that is not to say that we don't get a job or have an income or pay the bills or have a roof over our head. We do these things and understand it is God's grace. But what we're talking about is the wisdom of the world. In other words, living out our life in a secular fashion rather than according to the Scriptures. Running church, doing our due diligence in the Christian life, but adding things from the local non-Christian CEO or local non-Christian company or club or local non-Christian very moral upright citizen. You see, we do things according to the gospel. And when we do those things like that, you understand that the world looks at us and says, yeah, I kind of get that you Christians do that, but man, is that dumb. That is so, so, so foolish, right? When we do this, when we realize that we are self-deceived, when we realize that we are proud, when we realize that there may be the world's ways infiltrating our thinking and our mindset and then we pursue the wisdom of God, there are several spiritual and practical results that will happen that we have talked about thus far in 1 Corinthians, and I want to compile them here for you right now. I have uh, six of them. First, as we saw quite recently, when you do this, you start building with gold rather than stubble. And this gold will result in eternal reward rather than being burned up. You remember we talked about this in chapter 3, verse 12, and the few verses following and talking about how we live today, whether we or not we have the right heart, will determine on that judgment day whether our works will pass the test of fire and be eternal, right? Gold, silver, precious stones, and thus result in reward, or it will be burned up. And if you recall, these will be good things, but they don't have the right heart. So why is this worldly wisdom? Because you are just focusing on the externals. You are just focusing on image and looks rather than true worship from the heart. And that is definitely a a characteristic of our society today. And so the first result is that you build with gold rather than stubble. Secondly, and this is very closely connected to the first one, is that you will come to terms with the fact that you will, even as a Christian, ultimately give an account to God after all in the world, people as well as systems and wisdom have passed away. So you will come to terms with the fact. As you pursue God's wisdom in this life, you will come to terms with the fact that you will one day give an account to God. And that's in the judgment that we talked about in the previous point. Thirdly, you will live in accordance with the foundation of the gospel rather than the path of secular humanism or even the fear of man. Okay? I think this is obvious, right? As you pursue God's wisdom, you live in accordance with the gospel rather than secular humanism, the way of the world, or even the fear of man. And I think that is uh, pretty much, you could say, one of the major, major themes of the entirety of Scripture. Okay? Fourthly, to be more specific to what Paul is addressing here, uh, 
you stop dividing the church. You stop dividing the church. Now again, the division in your heart or in your church, whether it's this church or you're just visiting us from another church uh, this morning, you understand that you may not vocally badmouth others or proclaim factions or allegiances uh, within the church as the Corinthians are doing, right? But even if you just keep it to yourself, you never tell anyone, you, you, you even know that it's wrong and you're trying to deal with it, but you don't. You are so self-focused that you remove yourself from fellowship and you are dividing the church even if that only affects one person, which is yourself. But we know that that doesn't affect just you. It affects the whole body. So again, even as I mentioned earlier, even if you think, even if you attend regularly and you're interacting with people, but you come in and you, you think, yeah, that guy, man, I'm so much smarter than him. You know, I should be a deacon. I should be an elder. I should be doing that. You have caused division within the church that you have hidden in your own heart. And we looked at earlier, that's what Paul is concerned about because that's what God is concerned about. Fifthly, if you pursue godly wisdom, you learn to keep quiet. You learn to keep quiet. Obviously, we want people to talk, to encourage, to interact, to fulfill true fellowship. But I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Intellectual pride keeps you talking. We, we've all met people like this, right? People who express their opinion about everything even if it's not helpful. And probably especially when no one asks for their opinion. Not even just big issues, little issues. Right? Oh, you shouldn't park your... I noticed your car. You shouldn't turn your tire like that. You know, you should do this. You know, you know don't put your Bible like that. You know, the, the, the sound was a little loud. The sound was a little low. You know, the live stream was glitchy. Maybe you should try this. Maybe you should do this. You know, and, and some of these people have no idea what they're talking about. They're just proud, and so they have to tell you their opinion. You see, the proud is not content to just listen. It has to speak up. It has to criticize. It has to give his or her two cents when more often than not, it is worth much less than that. It is hurtful. It is divisive. One of the major themes of Proverbs, the whole book of Proverbs, if you read it over and over again, is that the wisdom of one who keeps quiet, keeps silent, guards his mouth over and over again. The wise is spoken of as the person who stays silent. Proverbs 10.19. You saw this coming. I'm going to read some for you. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 13.3. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. That's a great one. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people who do this, right? They're always given their opinion, and, and they kind of realize, well, people stop listening to my opinion 
people kind of avoid me and they're like, I don't know, I don't understand. Why do people avoid me like this? Why do people think of me like this? I'm always giving my opinion. And they just answer their own question because they are seen as a fool because they never stop talking. Well, sixthly, number six, your confidence is real rather than imaginary. What do I mean by that? Those who find their confidence in the wisdom of the world are self-deceived. And they think themselves smarter than they really are because the world tells them they are. So understand, and we've said this before, they may be smart according to the world's eyes, but what does the Bible say? They're actually foolish. Find your confidence in God's wisdom. Now that's real. That's secure. That's forever. Your confidence is real rather than imaginary. Now remember, what we're talking about is not a situation where you could say, well, he's probably not as smart as he thinks he is, right? Like there's degrees, right? He thinks he's here, but he's really just down here. He's not really dumb, but he's just not as smart as he thinks or as people think. That's not what this is saying. The reality is that the worldly wise, Paul says, is the opposite of wise. He's not just less wise. He is a fool. We have seen this over and over again in 1 Corinthians. The worldly wise is a fool because ultimately in the unbeliever's life, the worldly wise or worldly wisdom, I should say, rejects the gospel. So clearly we know that he is a fool. That's how the Psalms start off, right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? You think it is no coincidence that some of the greatest, according to the world, intellects of the world are atheists. Because the deeper they go into worldly wisdom, the more foolish they are according to God. Among Christians, those who play with or let worldly wisdom infiltrate, you got to understand you are still wise in the sense that you're founded on the gospel and the majority of your thinking is based on the gospel, but you are letting foolishness chip away at your thinking and your behavior. So, wise or fool, that is your choice. And as we saw last week, based on your positional holiness in God's eyes, you are considered wise because you have the gospel. But on a practical level, we can act foolishly. And this can be every single minute as we think about what we're going to choose day by day and what we're going to do. Again, just because you eat cinnamon toast crunch and non-Christians eat cinnamon toast crunch does not mean that you're being worldly wise. We're not talking about things like cereal or nachos or things like that, right? Obviously. I, I, you, you probably look at me like, why does he keep bringing this up? We, we get it. We're talking about decisions that are based upon Christian thinking. Now, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, does our choice of how we approach that cereal can that be wise or foolish according to God's eyes? Absolutely. Attitude of gratitude, thankfulness, right? You just want to 
just want to be a good testimony to my non-Christian kids and the people around me, so I'm going to pray a prayer. That's wood, hay, stubble. That's worldly wisdom, to just do it to be an example. But to pray that for thanks, even if it's two sentences, because you genuinely want to give thanks to the Lord and worship for even just that cup of water or that whatever you're having, then that's godly wisdom. So you see how even in the smallest decisions, we can choose either side. Now, again, just because you're like, oh, kids are watching, I need to pray for the food real quickly, doesn't mean all of a sudden you're falling into this pit of foolishness. But we have to develop a pattern of the right, again, heart. Well, let's move on to the third principle to remember to combat self-glory and division in the church. Uh, We've seen the asinine success, the antithetical strategy. And uh, thirdly, for today, this will be the last one for today, the authoritative support. The authoritative support, and then we'll look at 4, 5, and 6 next week. Look at verses 19 through 20, and you'll see why I call it this. He supports what he's saying with the ultimate authority, which is God. He quotes the Old Testament. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So Paul supports what he has said with words from the ultimate authority, God. Specifically, he quotes two Old Testament verses. And he begins by restating his premise in the beginning of verse 19. The wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. And here's why. The first quote is from Job chapter 5. Verse 13, and we find this verse in the middle of a speech of one of Job's, Job's friend, Eliphaz, that we read earlier for our Scripture reading. Now, this particular verse, the wisdom, uh, excuse me, this particular verse from Job 5, verse 13, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Uh, this is terminology from the world of hunting. It's a picture of hunting, Right? The hunter uses his craftiness to capture his prey. He uses his, his, uh, his, his cunning to know where the animal has been, to where to lay the trap, what kind of trap, how to make sure his human scent is not there, all that kind of stuff, right? But in this case, how uh, it's used in Job, he is using his craftiness to seek self-glory But that craftiness is worldly wisdom. Ultimately, what Eliphaz is saying is that these people are found to be too clever for their own good, and God uses their own schemes and ambitions against them to trap them. Now, the context, the wider context of this passage, as we saw earlier, is that God is contrasting the wise, the worldly wise, with the poor. And a theme is developed, which is God's deliverance of the poor while frustrating the worldly wise. In the end, the worldly craftiness ends up, or their worldly craftiness, I should say, ends up being their condemnation as God catches up with them and uses their schemes against them. They're caught in their own trap. And when that happens... I mean, you could, you could see this, right? Like, like a hunter going out and, and going, where was that trap? Where is that trap? And snap, the twig snaps, and then 
the cage falls on him. Okay, no hunter uses actual giant cages falling from trees, but you get it. Even worse, a bear trap that clamps on their foot and rips their flesh off. How about that? You'd be like, what a fool. Why would he go, you know, tromping around like that when he knows he's laid deadly traps everywhere? But it's his arrogance, perhaps. Oh, he can walk around like that because surely I'll know where the traps are because surely I've trapped something and the screaming animal would let me know where the traps are. No. He ends up being fool, a fool, and he is trapped by his own devices. It exposes their foolishness and shows that God's wisdom is superior. In fact, God's wisdom is the only true wisdom. I don't mean to uh, demean this analogy, but you guys remember Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner, right? Meep, meep, right? All of these Acme, right? He's always buying stuff from Acme, right? Why, I, don't, I don't think that would fly in this day and age that uh, a, a company is selling bombs and stuff like that, TNT, right? And the roadrunner always thwarts him, and he always gets, you know, he, he explodes, right? And then you just see ash and eyes, and the ash kind of falls down, and then there's just Wile E. Coyote's eyes. Remember this? If you look back, and if memory serves me correctly... It wasn't that his traps necessarily messed up. It's just that the roadrunner was way too smart for him. And then his ingenious invention turned up, in fact, to be foolish. And this is the idea here. It's, it's according to the world, this is great. My plan, okay, in the, in the context of Job, my plan as a successful ruler of this land, I don't need God. Look how rich I am. And I am going to suppress the poor with my genius, my ingenuity. And I'm going to do it in a way that they're trapped. And I still look like the good guy, but I get more powerful and I get richer. And God comes along and says, oh, no, no, no. I will take your plan, and your own plan will be your ruin as my grace pours over and lifts up the poor. You see, this is the silliness of even the greatest of men. I want you to think about that. Every time you understand that in your Christian sensibility, you are tempted, perhaps with jealousy or envy or desire to be like that guy who you know has gotten to where he is by stepping on the backs of the poor, by doing ungodly things, by rejecting God and persecuting his people, either directly or indirectly. But man, he's so smart. He's so wealthy, he's so influential, I just kind of wish, in a Christian way, to be like him. You know what I want you to think about to understand how ridiculous that is? Meep, meep. Bunch of ash and eyeballs and the ash just falling to the ground. Because in the end, again, his ingenuity is going to be his own downfall, even if it's not in this lifetime, but it is at Judgment Day. Well, if you're familiar with the book of Job, uh, 
you know that Eliphaz's advice is ultimately misguided and unhelpful because what he is accusing Job of, as Chris mentioned earlier, is wrong. But this particular quote explains a truth about God and how he debunks human wisdom and is a true statement. Well, the next Old Testament verse he uses comes from Psalm 94, and it's verse 11. And as Paul quotes it, he says, The Lord knows the reasonings or thoughts in some of your Bibles of the wise, that they are useless or futile. Useless or futile, depending on which version of the Bible you're using, simply again means foolish, empty, vain, useless. It expresses an aimlessness leading to no object or end. A good picture of this is, uh, you, you, ever, uh, you ever buy pistachio nuts, right? That, that's, uh, you got to endure a little bit there, right? You got to break open something, you know, the, the, sometimes there's one with just a tiny sliver and you're like, you got like 500, but I know you still try to get that one open. I know you do it. And, and you're just sitting there watching TV or whatever. And you're like, I'm not going to go get a nutcracker. Who has a nutcracker these days? I'm not going to go get something. You look at this and you know you have 500 others. And even if you're trying to be fiscally responsible, you know that that nut costs less than a penny. But you look at that and you say, oh, I'm going to break my teeth getting you out. I, I, will, I will have a lifetime of pain and $5,000 worth of dental work because this nut, you will not win over me, right? Now, could you imagine doing that, right? You hear the crunch, you spit out a piece of the shell, but it's actually your tooth, right? And you finally get it open, and it's empty, right? And then you put it down and go wipe up the blood off of your face. And, you know, th- this is the picture of this word. It's completely useless. You are dedicated to this thing, but there's no substance. It is empty. It is fitting only to chip your teeth or better yet, to be thrown away. Psalm 94 is a prayer for God to overthrow wicked suppressors and vindicate the righteous. And it starts in verses 1 and 2, Psalm 94, with this. I mean, these are powerful words. He says, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance. Yes, he says it twice. Shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. So this psalm is an appeal or call to God to come and render judgment to the wicked. Then we get to verse 11, which Paul quotes, and it speaks of the wisdom of man in the eyes of God. Despite their power, despite their influence, despite their manipulation, despite the fact that this psalmist has no other recourse in his own might and power and abilities but to call on God to help him out, the schemes of men will fail. Because even the highest thoughts of their best thinkers are worthless, fallible, junk, foolishness, empty nut to God. Ultimately, the Lord will not abandon the oppressed, but teach and help in their time of need. 
And in the context in which Paul uses this verse, we are again reminded of the ultimate futility of man's wisdom, especially as it infiltrates the church. It may not seem that way to us or even to the history books, but look at who knows. God knows, not us. God knows that it is useless. This brings to mind God's omniscience. He alone knows all men's thoughts and how futile they are. In other words, worldly wisdom will never accomplish God's glory. It will never accomplish God's will. And thus, God's wisdom exposes these so-called wise men, giants of intellect, as fools. For the Corinthians, their best thought in extolling themselves within the church context was to paint over this very thin veneer of seemingly spirituality by boasting, not in themselves, but human leaders, but we all know they were just boasting in themselves. But as we have seen, this not only divides and potentially destroys the local church, as we saw last week, but it robs God of His glory and places it on oneself. Let that sink in. You take away God's attributed glory and give it to yourself. It is an incredibly foolish and dangerous thing to essentially shove God off of his throne and plop yourself there. In other words, the Christian who trusts in his own wisdom fails to have a right understanding of even himself. Together, these two quotations illustrate the utter futility of the wisdom of the world. The reasonings and schemes that both these Old Testament passages refer to were also seen in the Jewish leaders' proud yet silly attempts to trip up our Lord Jesus. Remember all their schemes, their plots, their tricky questions? Jesus, in his wisdom, always saw through their cunning and frustrated their plans with just a word. And they're blown away. How how does he do that? Such wisdom. Again, God's wisdom exposes even the most learned men as fools. We read the Gospels and we we tend to think of, you know, these, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and priests. What a bunch of dummies. But in their day, they were it. They were the smartest. They were the leaders. People borderline worshipped them. They said jump, and a whole nation of people said how high. And yet, we read the Gospels and say, what a bunch of fools, because indeed, that is what they are in front of and in the eyes of God, Jesus Christ. Now, in the end, they did catch Jesus in one final scheme. But even that final scheme that led to the cross confused even the Roman leaders. He's done nothing wrong. I don't get it. What are you guys here for? There was no valid crime. And it went only went all the way through to corporal punishment because that was the plan of God. And in fact, was the very 
essence and foundation of the wisdom of God. So even in the cross coupled with the resurrection, not only the Jews, not only the Romans, but even Satan himself had his wisdom and plan shown to be worthless. You want to sum all of this up? All of this up very simply. The gospel spells the end of human pride. The gospel spells the end of human pride. And when you see yourself drifting towards pride, whether whatever form it takes, the fear of man, not wanting to share the gospel, not praying is a form of pride. Coming into church and thinking you're better, thinking you know better than scientists or politicians, or maybe you do, but you just proudly shake your fist at them because of all that's going on in our world today, which, by the way, you understand there's nothing new under the sun. With this combination of protests and COVID and what was that, killer hornet? I mean, there's all this stuff, right? People say, unprecedented times, unprecedented times. They're bad, they're weird, they're strange. They are not unprecedented. There has been sin, there has been, there has been disease, uh, there has been, there has been uh, uh, different forms of racism on a global scale, which today pales in comparison to what has happened in the past. I'm not undermining the severe, unprecedented perhaps in our lifetimes. Read the Old Testament. That was racism against the Jews all the way through uh, Hitler. I mean, even, even 30, 40 years ago, the intense persecution of Jews in America, Christ killers, they call them. Come on, right? Now it's blacks, Hispanics, Asians. It's all over. I mean, it, this is not unprecedented. This is sin. This is the wickedness of man. Well, what about COVID-19? That's sin. Sin. There was no disease in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Anyways, I don't know how I got there. When you, let's go there. When you find your mind straying, and what, oh, you shake your fist at politicians and scientists, right? Uh, for, you know, pride just is so much, Right? Uh, even you clicking on to satisfy on the internet to, to satisfy your own sinful lust, that's pride. That's using someone else for your own lust. That's pride because you think you know better than God. You think you know better than God of how you should find happiness and how you should use your redeemed body. Your job, the money, the paycheck that you used to pay for internet and bought that computer. Cross out a zero on your tithe check. That's pride. Because it's me, me, me instead of God, God, God. It takes so many forms. So when you do that as a Christian, understand that you're straying from the gospel. Not that you no longer believe it, but you're straying from living in accordance with the gospel because I will say it again, the gospel spells the end of human pride. 
stray too far from the gospel, and you have what's happening in Corinth in some form or another. Look at the false teachers on TV with their private jets and their multi-million dollar fourth vacation home on the coast of France. Do they sit there in their gleaming white suit with golden buttons saying, oh, I am just but a humble servant? You, if they do say that, see right through that and know there's anything but humility there. They have strayed so far from the gospel as is evidenced not only by their lives but their teaching that you see it. You see it. It's not even dividing the church because that's not a church. It's just like lemmings calling people to the cliff. Cliff. Stray from the gospel, and you have pride. Stray from the gospel, and you have division, either in your heart or manifested in the church or in your family or somewhere else. Stray from the gospel, and you have the Corinthian church. Stray too far from the gospel, and you have the city of Corinth, one of the most wicked cities in the history of man. Well, We've seen three of our six principles to remember to combat self-glory and division in the church, the asinine success, the antithetical strategy, and the authoritative support. Let me read for you again verses 18 through 20 that we saw this morning. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when on a spiritual and eternal level, when we can truly say that the wisdom of Albert Einstein and Steve Jobs and Kepler and all the incredible worldly geniuses that you graciously gave us over the centuries. But on a spiritual and eternal level that their wisdom was ultimately useless. We are so grateful, Lord, that in this clear yet simple gospel that you have given us the only true wisdom that matters, the only wisdom that is eternal and unchanging. I pray that you would give us uh, the knowledge, the discernment, the wisdom, practically speaking, to live out the gospel. And specifically, as we've seen this morning, to root out any pride or self-glory, to weed out any Division, whether it's contained in our own hearts or it fleshes itself out in any sort of animosity or put-downs or whatever it may be. Father, we know that ultimately people need Jesus. People need the gospel. And so whether it is family reunions or Zooming or on, with coworkers or 
talking through Mass at the grocery stores or even seeking the end to racism. May we do so not according to worldly wisdom, but with a motivation for the gospel, a motivation with the gospel, by the gospel, and through the gospel. Help us to align every aspect of our lives so that we know how to do that, even in how we thank you for a glass of water or pray for the end of COVID-19 or national racism. Teach us how to glorify you, how to see our lives and actions with the lens of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.